You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Jewish Matters podcast. Tonight, we're talking about extraordinary Jewish personalities, and we'll be talking about the Lubavitch Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. The Rebbe is a mythic figure, almost larger than life, a brilliant scholar, clearly a genius, a world figure who never left his home, built an entire worldwide network which spanned the globe, answered hundreds of letters, saw thousands of people a week, was visited by heads of state, Israeli prime ministers, New York City mayors, and and foreign leaders. And as we said, all without leaving the confines of his center of his headquarters. Let's first look back and understand what is Chabad Hasidus. Chabad stands for Chachma Bin Adat, three levels of understanding drawn from Kabbalistic sources. Started by the Alter Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, who was the disciple of the disciple of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement. And the Lubavitch movement, Lubavitch is in Russia, the movement was based in Russia, and the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi, composed a work called the Tanya. The Tanya is a book of the soul, exploring the inner depths. It's also a Kabbalistic book, but it's Kabbalah applied to the human being. And so the theme particularly of the animal soul and the divine soul, uh, the Benoni, the average person striving to grow and to serve God. And the Chabad movement, in a certain sense, did popularize Kabbalah and bring it to the masses, you could say. And the Rebbe's also had a very wide intellectual and uh, political breadth. Um, during uh, the Napoleon's advance on Russia, uh, interesting take on things. The Rebbe's were against Napoleon because they were concerned of the modernity that he would bring that would dilute the religiosity. Uh, They saw the Enlightenment on the horizon. And they actually spied for the Russians. And we'll see that the Rebbe's were not afraid to take political stance, including uh, the the, uh, the last Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel, who we're talking about. So um, let's talk about Rabbi Menachem Mendel. He had a very unique background. Growing up, he was clearly an ilui, what's called an ilui, a child genius. And he maintained a correspondence with a rabbi called the Gragachava Rebbe, who was uh, based in the Lubavitch movement, but was known as one of the geniuses of the 19th century, when there were many Talmudic geniuses, and one of the few people he corresponded with was Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Uh, Menachem Mendel uh, grew up in Russia, and he clearly, uh, at a, relatively in his late teens, a young age, it was already talked about that he would marry uh, his future wife, who was a distant cousin of his, and was the daughter of the current Rebbe, the sixth Rebbe, uh, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, 
known as the Friedugo Rebbe, the previous Rebbe. Uh, they became close, Menachem Mendel, with the previous Rebbe, even before the marriage, and he followed him uh, on, well, after he was chased out of Lubavitch, eventually to be chased out of Russia because of his efforts to strengthen and bolster uh, Chabad Hasidus and Torah Judaism in Russia during the communist regime. And despite the dangers, he did it anyway. Then, when he knew he was a wanted one, man, he fled to Poland, reestablished there. And that's where the couple would get married after five years of engagement. And the wedding was one fitting of a Rebbe building a movement. 5,000 people attended the wedding, it's reported. And, um, but the Rebbe was not, in a sense, meant to be a Rebbe. He was a loner, an introvert, as brilliant people sometimes are, kept to himself, and pictures of him show a picture of a young, intense, serious, introverted man. Now, in terms of understanding the Rebbe, there are three main biographies that we've drawn from. Uh, Rabbi uh, Steinsholz, uh, who, and uh, wrote his biography, My Rebbe, Rabbi Adin Steinsholz. Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, a very popular writer in New York, wrote The Rebbe. And Rabbi Chaim Miller wrote biography as well. In a sense, Rabbi Telushkin is the outsider looking in from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Rabbi Miller is the insider uh, telling the story. And Rabbi Steinsholz was very close to the Rebbe, was Chabad, but didn't live in Chabad and has a more scholarly, kind of almost objective bent. So those are the two, the three works to look at in terms of uh, looking at Morin, and they're definitely all three of them worth looking at. Um, so they paint this picture of the Rebbe. There's also the unofficial biography of the Rebbe, and he points out the more unconventional sides of the Rebbe. Apparently when the Rebbe got married, he was in a light-colored suit with white gloves, dressed uh, quite uh, um, stylishly, and the young couple were off to Germany after they were married, which is also very telling of how he didn't stay in Lubavitch, and he broadened his horizons. Still maintained a very strong connection to uh, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak. The couple would spend one or two months with them every year. 1935, they spent the whole year in Eastern Europe with them. Um, and he, uh, the Rebbe, called Menachem Mendel, his son-in-law, his foreign minister. And he would turn to him for a pulse on what was going on in the world. The Rebbe also uh, was involved in editing journals for Chabad, doing some re research projects. So always strongly connected, but living, in a sense, outside. Uh, in Germany, it was a very unique period. There were uh, a number of figures who would later turn out to be brilliant leaders of the 20th century Jewry, particularly Rabbi uh, Joseph B. Soloveitchik, became the head of university, Yeshiva University and uh, the driving force behind the modern, modern Orthodox movement in America. Rabbi Yitzhak Hutner, who became one of the driving forces behind the Yeshiva movement in America and Yeshiva Chaim Berlin. And he got smicha, the Rebbe was ordained 
by Rabbi Yaakov Yechiel Weinberg, who was also a brilliant rabbi in Germany, later in Switzerland, and known as one of the great scholars, uh, but also a very uh, open to different types of scholarship and to the outside world. Uh, also at the time in Berlin, who the Rebbe had contact with, Rabbi Avram Yeshua Heschel, would be the head of JTS and the conservative movement in America. Uh, Yeshaya Leibowitz, later Hebrew University professor, and um, were part of this group. And so after he no longer could be in Germany because of the 1930s, he moved to Paris, to the Marais, uh, which is the Jewish neighborhood. When I was in Paris a few years ago, I ran into a Chabad guy. We were schmoozing. He says, want to see, want to see the shul? So he talked me to the shul where the Rebbe hung out, so to speak, where he prayed. And the Rebbe was connected to the community. He even taught children uh, Torah. And when he was asked to sit on the eastern side where all the dignitaries and the rabbis usually sit, he, he refused and said, why isn't God here with me? in the pews with all the rest of the people. Then he moved into the Quartier Latin, into the students' quarter on the left bank, and kind of even more distant from the Jewish community. But throughout that time, there are those who report that his uh, intensity of ongoing Torah learning, connection to Chabad, remained just as strong. Uh, with that said, he did attend university in Paris, he attended the École Spéciale of Engineering, an uh, engineering school, and studied uh, physics and science there. And uh, it seems like he did enroll in some courses at the Sorbonne, but clearly his studies were not with the goal to have a degree which would lend him prestige, but to gain the knowledge. And later on, uh, when people would come to him for advice, uh, he would tell them, do you need to go to university to gain the knowledge? Is there another way that you can gain it? And uh, we'll talk about that later, how the Rebbe did not put everything into boxes. Each person was an individual, and he was a very individualistic, individualistic out-of-the-box type of person as well, uh, even after he became Rebbe. Although we will see how that evolves. So... In uh, the, the uh, cloud of World War II and of the Holocaust hovering over Europe, the previous Rebbe fled to America, and the Lubavitch Rebbe, Rebbe Menachem Mendel, would, uh, return, would follow him a few years later. In the 1930s, the previous Rebbe had gone to America for a year to try and establish Hasidic community and strengthen the Jewish community. But until World War II, the Jewish community was very weak. The Torah community in America was very weak. So when he arrived during the war, he really had to start over again and build again. They bought 770 Eastern Parkway. Eastern Parkway was a Jewish middle-class neighborhood at the time. And he bought the, they bought the building as his home and as the center. And it's reported that at the beginning, they would have to go out on the street to find people to get a minyan. And when you think of what the movement grew into with uh, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people connected to the movement today, it's quite, quite remarkable. Um, now, 
in the early 1950s, the previous Rebbe passes away. And in Chabad, the Rebbe's did not appoint their successor. The process worked that the community would themselves kind of show a consensus of who the pre next Rebbe should be. Uh, some communities would send letters of coronation, they were called, to show their support. Now, even though Menachem Mendel was somewhat of a loner in the uh, late 40s, he did start to give Fubringens, Hasidic gatherings with Torah teaching and spirited singing. He did have individuals who were coming in his orbit and close to him. But when he was approached after his father-in-law's passing to become Rebbe, he refused, said, no, that's not for me. And the one that appeared to be the one who would take over was his brother-in-law, uh, the Rebbe's other son-in-law, Rabbi Shmaryahu Gurari. Now, we said that the Menachem Mendel and his wife were distant cousins. His name was Schneerson. Uh, but Rabbi Gurari had grown up in Lubavitch, had been also very close to his father-in-law, and had stayed, always stayed within the movement. He ran the yeshivot, the Talmudic academies within uh, Lubavitch. Uh, Menachem Mendel had been taking on some projects once he got to America, uh, some of the outreach projects, some of the research projects, but still not central central. And um, the consensus started to emerge and it was leaning towards Menachem Mendel. And it appears that the more he refused, the more people insisted until after a year it became clear that he would succeed the Rebbe. And the story is that he never actually announced being the Rebbe, but at one of the forbringings he gave a mamar, which are the traditional discourses given by the Chabad Rebbe's in a certain style, and a certain structure, and everyone knew that he had accepted it. And the content of that talk was very telling. He quoted the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, Unafutsos Hamamayanot Hachutsa, the waters will spread outwards. And uh, which really is a message that Torah, Judaism, Hasidus, and Chabad needed to spread their message. Now, the previous Rebbe, and there, there are many similarities between Rabbi Menachem Mendel, the now Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel, and the previous Rebbe, his father-in-law. Uh, both of them were involved in world affairs. Uh, both of them sent uh, shluchim. Now, the previous Rebbe, what are the shliach? Shliach are the envoys of the Rebbe. And the previous Rebbe would send them throughout Russia, mostly to bolster the religious community there. And Rabbi Menachem Mendel extended it and put the emphasis on the shluchim really reaching out to every single Jew. And uh, we'll talk about the phenomenon of shluchim a little later. But in essence, what Rabbi Steinsholz describes is once the Rebbe became Rebbe, he underwent a transformation. It's almost as if, as if his personal self was 
nullifies, was negated for the Hasidim, for the movement, and for being Rebbe. And so he maintained a grueling schedule, if you will, um, having yechidas two nights a week. People would come and have one-on-one meetings. Often uh, this would go throughout the night, and over the years more and more people started to come to him. He would answer hundreds of letters a day, answer them all personally, uh, sign them in his own hand. He did have secretaries. Um, and uh, in 1964, when his mother passed away, he stopped having the one-on-one meetings and would meet with groups. In 1977, when he had his heart attack, he stopped having write, answering directly all of the letters. And that's when he started uh, giving out dollars. And people would line up for hours and hours and hours. Hundreds, thousands of people, particularly on a Sunday, but sometimes during the week. I myself went three times uh, and got a dollar from the Rebbe. And once uh, it was to ask for a blessing to get married. And I'll talk about that later. Once it was when I began my outreach work and he gave me three dollars, which I do still have somewhere. And um, what was most striking and what many people remark were his eyes. These piercing blue eyes which almost shined with a clarity and an intensity uh, that was very striking. But uh, when I asked for the blessing to get married, he said, Bekarov, with a smile, with almost a smirk. Um, Bekarov means soon. Soon turned out to be seven years, but maybe that's what his little smile was about. He saw I was eager. He knew it wasn't coming soon. And uh, so he said it with a, with a little laugh. Um, and more about this later, about the Rebbe's, the stories of people with the Rebbe and in the blessings and direction he gave, uh, what people call the miracle stories. But before we get to that, so what we're saying is that the Rebbe almost had, in, in essence, had no personal time to himself. He was the embodiment of the movement of his Hasidim of the people. And uh, he worked out of an office in 770 on a very tight schedule. Rarely would he ever leave the headquarters. And uh, my wife actually, even though she wasn't Chabad, went to a Chabad camp one summer. And the Rebbe came up and she said a verse, was chosen to say a verse in front of the Rebbe, a verse from the Torah, probably because she wasn't Chabad. And one of the stories was that the Rebbe's car broke down. I don't know if it was on the visit to her camp. And he said from that breaking down of four hours or whatever the delay was, he lost weeks and weeks from his schedule. In other words, it threw off his tightly kept schedule in such a way that after a while he never left. Uh, the one exception where we said he had virtually no personal life was his wife. And here it was very much the opposite. We said that the Revi was a very private person. His wife was an even more private person. But every day in the afternoon, they would have tea together. Their holiday meals and Shabbat meals, whereas most Chabad rabbis and outreach rabbis, and many people have a large Shabbat table and all sorts of guests. It was the Rebbe and his wife. 
When his mother-in-law was still alive, they would go there for holiday meals. But um, by and large, they led a very private life. And his wife, uh, the Rebetzin, when she would go out, would never identify herself as the Rebetzin. She was always Mrs. Schneerson from President Avenue. And uh, part of it, people thought, might have been because of the somewhat still somewhat contentious strains in the family because Rabbi, uh, uh, because his brother-in-law had been passed over as the Rebbe. And so his wife's sister uh, was still, it was still painful for her. So the Rebetzin never went to 770 to his Furbringens, possibly because she didn't want to outstage her sister. One way people see it. Um, but she remained very circumspect throughout. The Rebbe loved children, and in fact, the dollar, giving the dollar to people, and then they're supposed to give it to charity, started with him giving coins to children and told them, give this to charity. And of course, the children wouldn't give it, they would keep it, put it in their pocket, and take, go home and give a different quarter to charity. And there is an idea that the physical object is the receptacle for the blessing coming down. And the idea of a Rebbe is the Rebbe is the conduit for godliness coming into the world. They live a life particularly focused on spirituality. They are, in a sense, broad souls. And so that blessing gets channeled into the physical object. And so keeping the physical object can continue the transmission of that blessing. Another way in this which was shown is uh, after Shabbat, the Rebbe would say Havdalah, and then people would pass by and they'd constantly refill his cup. He'd pour off from his cup of wine and people would drink from the cup hundreds, thousands of people passing by, the cup constantly being refilled, refilled, and the, uh, the blessing being given to all. So these were some of, this was the profile of how he lived his life. Now, there are many different aspects which are unique to the Rebbe, as we say. He wasn't fitting in a box. Even though he carefully learned from his father-in-law from the previous Rebbe, the customs of the Chabad rabbis, which some of which he transferred to the general Hasidim, which had not been done before. Uh, but unique to him were many different aspects. One, he used a military analogy, the legions of, of Hashem, which he was mobilizing, the mitzvah tank. And it's not perhaps not coincidental that Chabad was a Russian Hasidus, and focused upon structure, marching orders, and the military language. He also was unique in his use of technology. Uh, originally radio, then tapes, then CDs, then the internet. Chabad was always on the cutting edge, global uh, closed-circuit TV, if anyone remembers what that was before the internet. Um, very uh, innovative in spreading the word, in the waters spreading out throughout the world. Uh, also mentioned his uniqueness in terms of reaching out to every single Jew. And he would start, he would send shluchim throughout the world. 
uh, one of the known rabbinic figures who was very impacted by him was Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of England and uh, master educator par excellence. And Rabbi Sachs talks about uh, going to the Rebbe to uh, try and understand whether he should be an economist, a professor, or a lawyer. And the Rebbe in his encounter, instead of, uh, you know, when he originally went asking questions of the Rebbe about Chabad and about philosophy, Jewish philosophy, the Rebbe turned it on him and started asking him questions about himself. And so when Rabbi Sachs came, what should I do? He said, you need to take responsibility to take leadership. We need training for rabbis in England, and that should be your mission. And Rabbi Sachs quoted that uh, great men make, uh, have many followers. Great leaders create leaders. And that's what the Rebbe did. Um, the Rebbe's management style was not top-down. He might send someone out, but he would never micromanage. And so his followers learned, uh, were given the room to grow and to actualize themselves. And more about that later. Another thing, thing unique about the Rebbe was his worldwide breadth. Uh, he spanned the globe. Um, he particularly uh, wanted his Hasidim to focus upon the Noahide campaign, campaign to have non-Jews follow the seven universal moral code, uh, the seven mitzvot commandments of the universal moral, moral code, and he lamented that it wasn't pushed enough. Uh, he was in favor of prayer in schools because he saw having a religious uh, non-Jewish world was vitally important for the world and for the Jewish people. As we know, he promoted public menorah lightings to, to be visible for everyone to see and having the Ten Commandments in uh, courtrooms. He also, interestingly enough, got very involved in Israeli politics almost more than American politics, definitely more than American politics. And um, he got involved in the who is a Jew issue of uh, who is defined as Jewish in terms of coming to Israel and making Aliyah. He was against giving back any land and against the Oslo Accords and very vocal about it because he didn't think it would lead to peace. And all of the leading Israeli politicians came to him, from Shimon Peres, Yitzhak Rabin, uh, Ariel Sharon, Menachem Begin particularly, who was more traditional, Bibi Netanyahu, all of them coming to him. He was involved in Russian Jewry as well, although his approach was always behind the scenes, sending people to teach even during communism and after the fall of the Iron Curtain, even more so. Uh, many leaders came to him from all walks of life. In, um, in the 1960s, Shirley Chisholm, a local black congresswoman from this district, came to see him in 1964, I believe it was. She was a freshman congresswoman and had been relegated to the, um, to the agriculture uh, 
um, uh, group in Congress uh, and to the Committee on Agriculture. And she lamented that she felt she'd been pushed aside and given something insignificant. When she came to see the Rebbe, he saw she was upset. He said, what's bothering you? Why are you sad? She explained to him that she thought she'd land with more of a splash in Congress. And the Rebbe said, you have an unbelievable opportunity. He said, agriculture has, means feeding people, means livelihood, and you have the opportunity to give and be charitable and provide food for those who don't have. And she set out for that to be her mission and set up the food uh, stamp program, which would assure that no American would go hungry. And at her retirement dinner, it was one of the things she was most proud of, and she cited the Rebbe for encouraging her to take that path. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy, when he was running for president, came to see the Rebbe. People don't know that Kennedy was actually very pro-Zionist, and in fact was murdered by Sirhan Sirhan, a Palestinian terrorist, because of his pro-Israel stance. So the Rebbe was uh, broad, and world leaders came to see him. But he wasn't just interested in world leaders. And when they came to see him, they would sit on the same bench outside his office, next to a young yeshiva bachar and a distressed woman. And, um, and he cared for everyone. And there are many, many stories, which we'll, some of which we'll tell later, about how years later he would remember someone who wrote him a letter. Years later he would reference, he would see someone and ask them, oh, how's your mother doing? Um, every individual counted for the Rebbe. And as we said, the Yechidah would go on all night. And um, so his view was broad and it was also individual. Now, we were talking about Israel. And the question is often asked, why the Rebbe never went to Israel. Uh, the Rebbe was, in fact, uh, the brunt of animosity from the Satmer because they felt he was too pro-Zionist. And he encouraged some of his Chabad Hasidim to go into the Israeli army. Uh, Chabad had a presence in Israel for many, many centuries, particularly in the city of Hebron. And I visited the, the Chabad house in Hebron, very powerful experience. And um, he, uh, one of the understandings is that if one goes to Israel, one is not supposed to leave. So the belief is that had he gone to Israel, even though his community needed him, he didn't want to have to leave. Um, but uh, the two unique things about the Rebbe, that he never went to Israel, and also that he never had children. And we'll talk about this later in terms of succession. Now, we talked about how he cared for each individual. Now I'd like to share some stories. And Rabbi Steinsholz talks about the miracle stories. And he notes how we hear the stories when the blessing did come, come true. But we don't hear the stories about when they didn't. What are the percentages? Are there statistics on this? No, they're not. And it's not something that is, one is out to prove. But yet, when I share with you these stories, I think you'll feel the impact uh, that the Rebbe had on people's lives.
in so many ways. Sometimes it was just giving encouragement and sometimes it was helping a person clarify their life purpose and direction. And there were, of course, also the miracle stories. So these are directly from Rabbi Steinsaltz, okay? So in a sense, I, I read them firsthand. Uh, you're getting them secondhand from me, but you can read them yourself. So Rabbi Steinsaltz's son was diagnosed with leukemia when he was 15 years old. The Rebbe, when they came to him for a blessing, was very encouraged. He gave him a blessing for a long life, and then he told him, but don't get a bone marrow transplant, which the doctors had been suggesting and in fact prescribing. The doctors were very upset. They did not do it, and sure enough, his son recovered. God, thank God. Years later at a convention, the doctors in fact recognized that for the son's condition, for what the son had, that bone marrow was not the best course of treatment. How did the Rebbe know? We, we believe that prophecy no longer exists. Did he have such wisdom and not understanding of science that he had a deeper grasp than the doctors? Was it a deeper vision, which we will see in the next stories? And the idea is this, that if a person is connected to their divine soul, and the divine soul is connected to the Almighty, then there's some people who can have a breadth of vision that transcend time and space. Now, um, you're not supposed to predict the future, but, as we said before, the Rebbe can be a vehicle for transmitting blessing and understand and feel uh, kind of how that blessing is flowing as it is. And it's something that is referred to as Ruach HaKodesh. It's a, uh, a, a spiritual insight that is not quite prophecy, but goes beyond the boundaries of most people's understanding and most people's per, uh, sensual perceptions through the senses. So, um, unfortunately, most of the boys in his son's ward did not survive their cancer. And there's particularly another boy who went to a bless for a blessing to the Rebbe. This boy appeared to be in better health. His illness was less severe. But the most the Rebbe would say was good tidings. And sure enough, tragically, this boy did not survive. Another story. In 1984, Satmar Hasid, as I mentioned, there was a lot of tension between Satmar and Lubavitch. So Satmar Hasid accosted the Rebbe and said, I don't have children. Was he challenging him to give him a blessing and show it could come true? And when, uh, it's not clear. But the Rebbe said to him, the boy will probably need someone to play with. The Hasid was puzzled, kind of tongue-tied at that answer. And the Rebbe said, answer Amen. So the Chassid said, Amen. Two years later, twins were born to this couple. The boy uh, will need someone to play with. Final story, Yitzhak Leitman. A Jew was supposed to be on El Al Flight 426 on July 22nd from New York to Tel Aviv via Rome. The Rebbe advised him to take another flight, which he did. A few days later, the night before, Ariel Sharon, 
general of the Six-Day War and future prime minister came to visit him. And they sat all night talking. Sharon was so exhausted, he kept saying to the Rebbe, I have to catch a flight, I have to catch a flight. And the Rebbe said, take another flight. Flight 426 was hijacked, leaving Rome, brought to Algeria. And who knows what would have happened if an Israeli general had been on that flight. And when he was asked, why didn't he warn everyone on the flight? He said, do you think I knew the flight was going to be hijacked? Sharon came, we talked, and I, he was tired. I told him to take another flight. So, uh, I leave it up to you to, in, to uh, unpack the significance of these stories. But there are dozens, hundreds of stories that can be read. And um, as I said, not all of them were this extraordinary. Some of them were a business investment uh, suggestion. I believe Gutnik went to Australia. The Rebbe told him to invest in certain mines and became enormously wealthy. Um, and some of them were a uh, word of support and encouragement and empathy for someone going through a hard time. Okay, now for the shluchim. A shliach means an envoy, an emissary. And as we mentioned, the previous Rebbe would send emissaries as well. But uh, Rabbi Menachem Mendel, the, uh, the Rebbe, uh, upped the game, so to speak. And the shluchim were sent, and if you've traveled anywhere in the world and wanted to connect to a Jewish community, uh, uh, my wife was sent on a business trip to convention to the Big Island in Hawaii. And uh, I tagged along. She told them I need kosher food. We, they send... They said, we'll do some research. They send this email with a link and we see kosher in Hawaii, beautiful graphics. We think, oh, this will never be kosher to our standards. It's probably kosher style. We click through, click through, click through a project of Chabad of the Big Island. And sure enough, in Kona on the Big Island, there's Chabad. Who is it? It's the daughter and the son-in-law of the Chabad Shliach in Honolulu. And whether it's, not everyone has that gig, a friend of mine, his son was sent to Siberia to work with the Jews there. Um, and there are innovative shluchut, um, some to the prisons, others uh, friendship circle, children with disabilities. Uh, but all of them felt like they were not just spreading Judaism, not just teaching Torah, but they were the personal emissary of the Rebbe. And that gave them the strength and the enthusiasm and gives them to not just go out, not just go out to places where there's no Jewish community, and all sometimes it means really none, uh, but to go out for the rest of their lives. Usually a shlichut is permanent, and the people in the community know that they will be there for their entire lives. Yet, as we mentioned before, um, Rabbi Sachs's quote, great leaders create leaders. He, didn't, he might send a shliach to a certain place, but he wouldn't tell them how to set up shop. He might give some advice if asked, but it was never dictated. And through that, he allowed his followers to find the, their own inner strength, to find their own way that, which would work for them, 
and his style was not micromanaging. Um, and sometimes people felt like he could have and should have in, uh, gotten involved more in inner disputes, which he would not do. He also did not serve as a posek, as giving rabbinic rulings, uh, only advice. So he stepped to his mission. And he made it kind of the most desirable uh, mission in Chabad was to be a shliach. And he had a worldwide vision of bringing all Jews, of connecting all Jews, giving all Jews opportunities. And by the way, when someone would say, oh, I'm working at uh, being Makarev, at bringing Jews closer, he would say to them, how do you know they're far away? Who are you to say who's near and who's far? So the Rebbe's view was that every Jew was precious. When asked, how could he stand for hours and hours on end into his late 80s, giving out dollars? He said, when you're counting diamonds, you don't get tired. And so he had this worldwide vision. And part of that vision was his messianic vision. And here we'll talk about the Mashiach theme in the Rebbe. Now, the previous Rebbe had also stressed the thing, theme of bringing Mashiach. But uh, Rabbi Menachem Mendel, it was very concrete. From everything from encouraging little girls to light candles to the fall of the Soviet Union, he saw in these events something deeper. In the last two years, Rabbi Steinzold says, it seems like the only thing he talked about was Mashiach. And sure enough, there are many followers who believed he was the Mashiach. This became controversial outside of Chabad. But there is an idea that in each generation there's someone who could be fitting to be Mashiach. And if one of Mashiach's roles is to bring, to connect Jews to Torah, who in his generation equaled the way in which he did that. There are other great figures who had a broad breadth, but his, one could argue, was uh, of incredible breadth. And I can another first-hand story. Uh, I was in 770. This was about a month before the Crown Heights riots, and we'll talk about them in a second. And everyone was expectantly waiting for the Rebbe to come out for morning services, which were at 10 o'clock during the week. That was their custom. So I was there at 9.45 and waiting. The Rebbe comes out and everyone starts singing, Yechi Rabbeinu Moreinu Melech HaMashiach Le'olam Va'ed. May he live, our teacher, our rabbi, the king, Mashiach, forever and ever. Now, the Mashiach is supposed to be a dynamic leader who will perfect the world. And it could be they were just singing enthusiasm for Mashiach. But it very clearly was directed at him. And I saw him myself go like this and encourage them on. Now, you could say in the Rebbe's mind it wasn't necessarily supposed to be him, although he even dropped hints that it could be. Um... One pamphlet I saw said he is in the role that he wrote, said he was in the role of Elijah who's supposed to come and announce that Mashiach is coming. There are those who want to say this about the controversy of the Mashiachistas, those who believed he was Mashiach, which is that he wanted people to take Mashiach seriously, to take 
responsibility to perfect the world. And by the way, he did not subscribe to the what I call the silver bullet philosophy of Mashiach. Mashiach will come and fix up the whole mess. That no, everyone had to take the steps and when we got the world ready, when everyone took responsibility, when everyone did good deeds and reached out, then Mashiach would come. And he put his uh, actions where his words were in terms of creating the movement and the impact he had. And so this is the understanding that if the price to pay for people taking the idea seriously and being truly passionate about it and really believing that it's a reality that the world can be perfected and world peace can be achieved and all the Jewish people can be brought back to Torah and Israel. If the price to pay for that being real was that it was projected onto him, so be it. That's one way to understand it. Now, tragically, uh, a month later, the Rebbe's motorcade, I said the Rebbe almost never left his home. The one time he did leave it was to go to his father-in-law's grave, where he would spend sometimes every day, some, in later years, sometimes hours, sometimes the whole day there. And he wouldn't eat before he left. He would be fasting and praying. And he would also say, if someone would ask him something, he would sometimes say, I'll ask my father-in-law the belief that we can connect to the souls of those who've left, particularly great tzaddikim, great righteous people whose souls don't completely leave. So the motorcade was on the way to the Ohel, as it's called, and it struck, a, one of the cars in the motorcade struck uh, a young uh, little boy, an African-American boy. The black community was outraged, and similar to the rage we see today, the mobs took to the streets and uh, largely turning it upon the Chabad community. A young yeshiva student from Australia was stabbed and murdered. And it took days for Mayor David Dinkins to calm things down and bring peace. There are videos of the Rebbe and Mayor Dinkins on good relations. Uh, I don't know if that video was before or after the riots, but about a month after the riot, the Rebbe had his debilitating heart attack. And for the last 28 months, he would be barely responsive, in a wheelchair, sometimes wheeled out during services. And this only heightened the messianic speculation. And, um, but it was not to be. The Rebbe would pass away. Controversially, many would still say he's still the Mashiach. He will be resurrected and brought back and bring the final redemption, which is not outside of Jewish theology, but certainly is not usually taught and promulgated. And uh, what's most extraordinary is that, so he was Rabbi Menachem Mendel, the seventh Lubavitch Rebbe, seven is the number of spiritual completion. He had no children. There are so many signs that people thought this is the culmination. And sure enough, no Rebbe was ever appointed after him. But whereas people thought the, the movement might be torn apart by the messiness and the non-messiness, uh, by the lack of leadership, 
uh, we've seen the opposite. We've seen the movement grow, become even stronger, and even with even more breadth and even more vitality. At the Shluchim conference, there are over 6,000 who attend. And the number of people believe now is might be over 100,000 uh, Chabad throughout the world. On the 25th, the art side of the Rebbe, there were 100,000 people on, I don't know, it was a Zoom call or on, a, on an online platform. So, and this is really a testament to who the Rebbe was, that his influence is still being felt throughout the world, that his message is still relevant as ever, and that his followers are still encouraging Jews to be with joy, to do mitzvot, to be kind to others, to fix the world. And we should all study his teachings and merit to live up to them. Have a good evening.